You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. I am uh, truly, truly enjoying and just loving the opportunity to teach through James. I, I, it's been years and years since I've done it, but uh, there's, the perspective is just incredible. So we're, we finished chapter 3 last week, so let's just launch into verse 1, James chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? I think it's immediately interesting how correct James assesses what it looks like for brothers and sisters in Christ to be in conflict. I think his choice of words, uh, war and fightings, uh, does a, is, a, is very descriptive of what happens when there's conflict within the body of Christ because it gets vicious. I mean, when you, when you recognize how many, I, I, I think this would be a phenomenal number to know, how many times churches have split and how angry people are in the split. I mean, here, years ago, uh, this, when the, the last time that this church split, uh, it had nothing to do with the church. It was a, it was a separate, because every church in the community split all at the same time, because it wasn't a church issue, it was a school issue. So every, it split everything. But it was amazing how many years it took, and I'm not sure that there's still not a few remnants of it uh, in, in a few people. The bitterness was extreme. Uh, I was up preaching. I didn't, have, I didn't have a dog in the fight, but I was up preaching here substituting for somebody and uh, a lady that had been my Sunday school teacher, friend of my mother's, close to our family, got up and, and said some harsh words and turned and walked out. And to my knowledge, never, ever, ever came back. She died, but she don't think she ever came back. And it was just amazing how, how deep the bitterness was. And I know that that's, that's possible in, in all organizations, but when when, you, when, when churches do it, when it happens between brothers and sisters in Christ, we feel so strongly about the positions we hold that the bitterness becomes very, very intense. So I think James has done a good job of act, actually and accurately describing what the conflicts look like, wars and fightings among you. He says, come they not hence, is this not where they come from? even of your lust that war in your members. Now, again, James is taking on a significant topic, but 
he's approaching it like, I'm not, I don't think we need to dance around here. I think we're going to have to just hit this thing with a hammer as quickly as we can. Because his announcement immediately is that the reason that there's these conflicts, there's, the reason that there's this fighting among you is that there's such a desire that, that, that we meet our own needs. There's a selfishness in this. I mean, he uses these words. Is it, is it not coming from lust? He's saying, isn't there a carnality among the brothers and, brother, and the sisters who are supposed to be functioning in the Spirit? James is describing something that you and I know very well. We know that anything above this line of the flesh, and, and my definition of how I capture the flesh is those things of our body, those things of our soul. That's the flesh. The things of the spirit, when we go above that line, that spirit that was quickened when, when, we're, when Jesus died on the cross, when we become a believer, that that which was dead comes back to life, that which allows us to have a, a, a relationship with God. My, my, my body lets me have a relationship with myself. My soul lets me have a relationship with others. My spirit lets me have a relationship with God. When, that, when we actually become alive again in our spirit, then all of those things come into play. So it would be real hard to create a conflict if we truly understood unconditional love. It would be real hard to even pick a fight with someone or to be offended if we understood un, you know, uh, unconditional forgiveness, unconditional kindness, unconditional grace, unconditional mercy. All the things of the Spirit tell us that, that conflict there is not possible. All conflict drops below the line. So we're not talking about lost people here. James is talking to, to, to Christians. So he's talking about carnality found within the body of Christ. Saved, yes. A, a spirit that's alive, yes. But where our motivations, our directions, the selfishness is coming because even though I'm alive in the spirit, I'm choosing to function in the flesh. I'm choosing to function, trying to get my own needs satisfied. When we get even the most basic truth, when we have received the most basic revelations, and I'm not even talking deep and profound. I'm not talking about just the stuff that we, that we dig and God reveals to us and it just wows us. This ought, to be, this ought to be something that's picked up right on the surface. That Adam and Eve in the garden prior to sin, prior to that original sin, had no eyes to see themselves. They were completely other-centered. I know this because it says when, they, when their eyes were opened, when they ate of the fruit, it says they saw something they'd never seen before. They saw themselves. Self was introduced in that moment. Sin 
introduced self-centeredness, self-awareness. But we don't get, we're not going to mess this up. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? God, holy, I'm not. But by the blood of Jesus, what he did, not what I did, but by the blood of Jesus, I am reconciled back to God so that I can now function on a, in a level God and me together. Again, we're not confused, but reconciled to what? If he killed sin, it's dead. Not confused, Romans 6, 2 Corinthians 5, dead. Then it doesn't have any power over me anymore. So the ability for sin to create self-centeredness is gone. Well, again, I'm teaching this as an absolute because I don't know any other way to teach it. Reconciled to God, sin now dealt with, given this newness of life that we get to walk in, the the first recognition of, of a believer should be that we're returned to that pre-sin condition of Adam and Eve, and we are once again, the the most evident thing about us is that we are other-centered. Now, we ask ourselves about the church that we see. We ask ourselves about a, a bride that he will come back for that is spotless, a bride that is before him that he's, that he's coming to, to, to take. What is one of these first attributes of that, of that bride in her purity? I don't think we're going to find selfishness in that bride. I would be, I would, would you be surprised if it was? When we, when we start reading Revelation 19 and we're reading about Jesus coming for this bride that is dressed in white and she's spotless, can you imagine that? But he's saying, but I know that, but I'm, I'm okay with a, a little bit of selfishness on her part. You see, I can't, I can't get there. And I think James is drawing an immediate attention that the first evidence of a a converted believer, because again, think of when he's writing. We're talking about James writing this shortly or as one of the first things written after the crucifixion, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, after sin has been dealt with, after the work of the cross is complete, after all those things that James witnessed As the brother of Christ, James witnessed these things. Now he's writing according to what the Holy Spirit would give him. And he's already recognizing this quickly, that what what Jesus has done, the life that we watched Jesus walk, was a selfless life. When when the guy comes in, and I think the Bible says he has dropsy, and I, I don't even know what that is except for the fact that it, when I looked it up, it's like they're 
their, their body won't process away fluid? Is that the way it is? Okay. That's what I know. Uh, whatever I had read, it's like that they're like a sponge that won't get rid of fluid. Yeah, and there's nerve disorder. Yeah. So when this guy walks in, and Jesus is actually with the religious leaders at the time when this guy walks in. And what do you think the general perspective is when the guy walks in? For everybody, yeah, for everybody except one. And what does that one do? He goes and he embraces him. He hugs him. You see, you're not going to do that if there's, if there's a selfishness or a self-concern going on. So James is recognizing he watched Jesus walk each day. He saw this ministry for these three and a half years, and he never saw Jesus once function from a selfish place. Can you, can you think of one? For what Jesus did was selfish. No, absolutely not. So James has witnessed this, and he's saying, now, not only do I have a picture of this, not only have I walked and observed this something new that Jesus is bringing us, this sinless life is producing something I can visually and tangibly recognize that he's 100% other-centered. Now, you and I, that our sin is dealt with, by the blood of Jesus, have been reconciled back to the same place where Jesus walked each day, and there's no place for us being selfish or self-centered. I should each day be more concerned about you than about me. I don't, I'm not trying to say I need to neglect myself. But I am saying that I don't have to, I don't have to tend to myself to your neglect. You should be, especially as God talks and God shows and God makes ready. You should be where my heart is. I Again, I get to live in a remarkably blessed place. I'm not just talking about sundown. I'm I'm not just in this church, but I get to live personally each day in a remarkable place. I get to walk in a level of freedom I would have never even imagined possible. I'm not encumbered by things of the past as I once was. I have been set free from those things. I don't carry baggage. I don't carry bitterness. I don't dislike. I don't. I'm not frustrated. It's, but the big thing, if you want to know what's at the top of my list in all things, is I want my wife to be the first recipient of all that God does.
I want her, when this cup starts overflowing, I want the overflow to touch her first. I want her to experience the goodness of God as it, as it overflows. I want her to be the first recipient. Now, James is dealing with things on a large scale, but he's also dealing with things on a very small scale. What's causing it? Lust that war in your members. You lust, but you have not. James is saying, what is it getting you? You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. What is the success rate of, of lust? It's not good. What is the success rate of killing so that we can have what we desire? Does it really let us obtain what we wanted? No. And again, James is, is doing a great job of building this. You have not because you ask not. And we know what he's talking about because it's what he's about to say next. He's, he's, he's talking pretty specifically about, about asking. He's talking very specifically about prayer. And I, and I love uh, where he ends up going with this. Let's look at verse 4. No, let's look at verse 3. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Now, this is huge. This is one of those verses, if you mark in your Bible, you need to mark this one. How many of our prayers that we pray go unanswered because we pray amiss? I had a, I shared this last night at Bible study, but I had a, uh, I was visiting with someone in Lubbock earlier in the week and sitting there with him and I, and I asked this question, if, you're, if your daughter calls and says, uh, hey dad, I've got, a, I've got a flat tire on my car, could you get it fixed? Sure, be glad to. So you make the call, you get it fixed, everything's good to go and you get this call from your daughter and say, hey dad, got a flat on my car, would you get it fixed? What are you talking about? Just go out there and look, and you'll see that it's, it's fixed. Oh, yeah, I saw it. But would you, would you fix the flat on my car? So she waits a little bit. She calls back. Hey, Dad, would you fix the flat on my, on my car? What's, it, what's his answer going to be over and over and over? I have what? I have already done it. What do you think our prayer life often sounds like to God? And I know, I can, I can, I can say, and I, and I think I can say it correctly, that God's not going to get upset when he hears from you. 
I'm not sure he's getting upset when we're having these conversations, even if we don't quite get the prayers right. But James is making an excellent point here because how many of our prayers, first of all, are asking God for something and God saying, I have already finished that work. You, you don't just ask for strength because there's not more strength for me to give. I can't give you more peace. I can't give you more love. I can't give you more joy because I didn't hold anything back from you. There was not anything else for me to give you, but you keep asking for it. And, I, and I'm sure God is, is lovingly reminding us, I've, I've already done it. I've already done it. But what, what James is addressing here is how many times we ask for something, maybe, not, maybe that God's already given, but we're asking God for something simply because it's something that we will, by the nature of it, consume. Now, remember the picture. Remember where James is coming from. And he's talking about wars and striving. And he's talking about these lusts. He's talking about this reality of self. If self has already been dealt with, does, does it at least sound strange that we pray so much for ourselves? And maybe not the one sitting in this room, but don't you think that across the believing world that there's certainly a disproportionate number of prayers that are someone praying for something that they need? And what's God's normal, would God's normal answer be? What need are you talking about that I haven't already met? You see, we, because of the way we teach, because of the way pastors preach. And again, I know that I say this way too often, but when pastors and teachers don't teach the things of God as absolute, Again, I, and it's, a, it's the example I use, again, way too often as well. If I were to be talking to someone about salvation and say to that person, if you will ask God, he will forgive your sins. What crack have I left in that door? Your sins, are not forgiven. Your sins may not be forgiven. Because if you ask and say, God, would you forgive my sins? And you think leaving that moment that God's forgiven your sin, but you sin again the next day and you feel guilty about it. What's the conclusion? Either I didn't ask right or he didn't quite finish the job. But if I teach your sins are forgiven, I'm closing the door. I've got to talk to you about something else. I had one of those this morning. A person just struggling. And it was not easy for that person to even hear about the righteousness of God with what God sees when he looks at this person when the person is feeling so badly about what, what they've done. And God is saying, listen to me. 
Listen to me. You're, you're dealing with something here that I've already conquered. You're dealing with sin that I've defeated. You're dealing with something here that has already been destroyed. You're wanting, you're wanting, you're wanting healing. And healing is a tough one. But I can tell you, with a, if anyone sitting here is a believer, I may not always be able to tell you absolutely everything about what's going on with you physically, but I can tell you, you will never die. I can tell you that for sure. You'll never die. And I want to tell it as an absolute. Somebody says, well, it sure seems to be a lot of that going around. Nope. What part of them died? Do what? Yeah, the body did, but even what's the promise for that? I don't know how you really count it dead if it's temporary. Do what? Sin died. I like that. You see, we, we, teach, we teach in the margins, and it affects our prayer life. We teach the truth. We teach truth that's, that creates freedom, that, set, that really sets you free. We, when we're, we're not hesitant to speak, you know, again, this coming, this coming Sunday morning, uh, Andrew and, and Lisa are going to come and share their story and, and share the message that God has given them out of that story. And it's, a remar- it's remarkable to hear. It's like, I don't know, you know, but you ask, you ask them, and I, I don't think they'll bring it up. But for their story to be as broken as it was, for him to have been doing what he was doing, and for them to be completely reconciled, completely healed, completely whole, to be able to stand and tell this story of complete transformation, of complete forgiveness, of complete newness in that marriage. For them to be able to, to do that. Guess who created the greatest hardships for them in that journey? Who, who, who complicated their story the most? Do what? No, they were doing real well. They're Christian friends. Her Christian friends saying, you are crazy. Taking him back. You are, you've lost your mind. He needs to be punished. He needs to be taught a lesson to make sure he doesn't do it anymore. They have, again, they had. It's their story to tell, and they'll tell it Sunday morning, and you'll hear the part that God wants them to share. But it's been amazing to walk with them since that time and to to realize that the the conversations I'm having with them are very often are helping them actually know truth instead of what those Christian friends have been telling them. It's been, been a very interesting journey. You see... 
We don't understand this, this beginning of this verse very well. You ask and receive not. Because you ask amiss. My notes in, the, in this Bible, you ask and receive not, says when you do pray, you get nothing because you pray with the wrong motive, namely to add to your own pleasures, to add to your, to your own story. That's praying amiss. Don't be confused when somebody says, my prayers are not being answered. Very likely they're praying for something they've already gotten or they're praying for something that they can consume. And I'm not just talking about, God, I, would, I like a new car. That's, that's a little bit obvious. What, are, what, what do these prayers sound like when they pray for things that they can consume? What do you think? Do what? A raise. Yeah. They could, they could, you, could, you could sure pray for more money. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Even the misunderstanding of, of a problem. You know, it, it was just, it was, I can't, I could, I could not do it. I, I can't, I'm not quite as uh, uninhibited, I think, as Graham Cook was, but it, for him to have that, that imaginary conversation about a problem, about how excited he was when the problem showed up. And he calls someone, and he, Graham Cook is having this one-sided conversation. He said, I got a problem. He said, I'm willing to share it, but only if the next time you get a problem, you're willing to share it with me because I'm, I, you know, I don't really want to give this up. Now, how interesting it would be because most of the time we're praying, God, I've got a problem, and I need you to take care of it. Instead of recognizing that the next problem that we face is God's next great opportunity to manifest himself in some way dynamic. We, we face things with dread. And God is saying, look up. Just look up. Anticipate. Consider. So, so many perspectives, so many differences. Ye adulterers, adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Ugh. Ugh. That, that almost, you can, you can feel the, you can feel the brush of the wind as that, that club gets, just barely misses on, on some of these things. That you adulterers, adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? We... Uh, We don't like this topic. We don't like this topic. I'm, I'm trying to be careful 
to find illustrations that don't speak anything about me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I know people, and, and, and we all do, that have passionate interest passionate taste for things that they can speak about endlessly that and you and you're sitting and saying how in the world could you ever give that much time and attention to something that that absolutely matters so little And food is one of those, to me, that, is, that has gotten out of control. It is, I, I, I struggle to find entertainment watching people cook. Do y'all, do y'all anybody watch those? Oh, do what? Yes. Oh. I don't watch it on TV. I just like to see her in the kitchen. It's always the end results are great. What? I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying food, but my goodness, the extreme to which people go. I know a guy that will spend the night in in Brownwood because there's a restaurant down there that he likes to eat at. I can't, this is one where I have to be like real, real careful. I, I can't believe what people pay for coffee. Whoa. Tea, that's a different story. <laughs> okay. My dad has a friend that goes to Florida periodically for business and he drives because Florida's like 10 hours from, you know. Mm-hmm. And my dad will give him a cooler and bring his one burger back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, dude, I went down the street. <laughs> We, we value odd things. We truly value odd things. Somewhere there's going to be a very strange correction. We're going to, there will come a day when we're going to realize I spent a lot of time concerned about very, very unimportant things. And again, James is, a, is, is far more abrupt. I, think, I don't think James was talking about the, the price of coffee. I don't think James was talking about, about restaurants and movies and about how we commit ourselves to those things that the world tells us are valuable. But James was addressing things that are very, very 
base level. You adulterers, adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I'm not talking issue by issue. I'm not talking just about somebody that is a believer and they've got this strange uh, desire for Underwoods. I'm not talking about that. Because, because James, again, is addressing something on a, on, a, on a very different scale. Because if I have, if I'm still a friend, keyword, if I'm a friend of the world, what scripture does that immediately f- fly in the face of? Being not in the world. That's right. And in, in the world. Yeah. Putting the world before God. Putting the, yeah, putting the world before God. The scripture, that come, they, there are several that come to my mind. But no longer slaves, but friends. Now, what, what, is, what is the determination of the world in all things? What's, what's the purpose of a commercial? Sell something. To sell something, but they really want to create a slave. They want to, they want to create bondage. They want to create your commitment to something they're trying to sell. The world is going to push always for bondage. I have to have it this way. I want it this way. I want it my way. The world's going to push that button over and over and over. The world is going, to, is, is going to build that mindset. And God says, I'm setting you free from slavery. No longer a slave, which is what the world, because who does it represent? It's Satan. So why would Jesus, described in, in Isaiah 61, why would that read? I came to set captives free. I came to open prison doors. I came to remove chains. I came to give beauty for ashes. Why, what's happening here? He's saying everything that I've come to do is designed to set you free. So what was Satan's attempt to be? We're not, we don't have to be particularly clever. If Jesus came to set people free, what would Satan's motive be? To create bondage to the world where he's the prince. No big, no big surprises. I wonder how many times a day, almost inadvertently, we use the word my. Get out of my way. I may not say it out loud, but I might think it a few times in, when I'm driving. My church, my home, don't scratch my car. I don't want to waste my money. How many things have we taken possession over that we have no chance in the world of owning? Yes, ma'am. You know, um, from the first time you read it uh, earlier, um, it sounded to me, you adulterers, mm-hmm. sounded to me 
life. Uh, God is saying, you're betraying me with the world. You're, Good point. You know. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's your first, you know, it's almost like that. Is that your first love? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm your first <clears throat> Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Whosoever is determined to be. Our nature has been changed. I don't, I don't have a sin nature anymore. Can you accept that about yourself? You do not have a sin nature anymore. Can you grasp it? You, have a, you are the partaker of a divine nature. And the divine nature, a sin nature is going to produce what? Sin. sin, very naturally. A divine nature is going to produce what? Very naturally. Divinity, candy. No. <laughs> <laughs> what would a divine nature produce? The divine one. It will, it will produce the things of God because he's the one actually doing it. We don't have that sin nature anymore. For me, to be, for me to be a friend of the world, I'm acknowledging that something in me is still very broken because, because he transformed me from a sin nature to a divine nature. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end, I think, with verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain the spirit that dwells in us lust to envy? Uh, who, Judy, what version of the Bible do you have? Would, would you read that out of your Bible? Verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Read it again. The last part. The, Yeah, I don't think that's what it says. I mean, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. But I don't think that's what that scripture really says. Anybody else have a different version? I can change it in my version. Yeah, mine says the good news Bible. Okay. I think it may be saying them. I'm just, I'm, I'm not hearing it as, as simply as I think it was actually being said. Or do you think the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Yeah. That's it. Now what version are you reading? The New King James. The New King James. Read it, read it one more time. Or do you think that the spirit, the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Yes. Yeah, really what he's what James is saying, and that one says it as clearly as I could. And in the King, in the King James, almost says it clearly, but it's just like the Spirit that dwells in us. So, what Spirit is that? It's the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that 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 Spirit that dwells in us lust to envy? 
So the, the, he's saying, is that spirit that now lives in you, is it, is it going to produce that envying? Is it going to produce that lust? No. It's not about to. So, the, so James is bringing this argument kind of full circle and saying, if you are lusting after those things, if you are of the world, if you are that adulterer or that adulteress, if you are doing those things, are you saying by, by this, are you saying that the spirit that's living in me is actually producing that lust? Because that's what, by the nature of our Christian lives who say that we are of the spirit, and when we, when we have that lust, are we not testifying to the world that the spirit in me is creating that lust? And James is saying, absolutely not. That is never what we would, we would be able to say. That is never going to be the truth. But when we live this duplicitous life that says, I, I am a person of the Spirit, but I want my way. What happens in, what happens in church splits where we started? Yes, I'm a person of the Spirit, but I want my way. I want the songs to be sung that I like. I want the preacher to preach what I want him to preach. I want the things to go my way. I'm a person of the Spirit. So James is asking the question, if you're of the Spirit, will that Spirit create this? No. No. It will not. So where is this selfishness coming from? Where is this self-absorption coming from if I say that I'm of the Spirit, my testimony is it must be the Spirit. And James is saying, I don't think that's correct. I think you've got to, I think the world has a hook in you. I can, I can understand that. I can't understand that in this context. James was aggressively moving against the church's connection to the world. And well, maybe so. Maybe, maybe it does drop in there. Uh, let me let me stop here just for a second. Let me let me look at the scripture. Okay, I think I think this note says it says it well because it says both. Uh, in the in the footnotes in this Pilgrim Bible, it says to the portion that says in vain. Do you imagine that there is no meaning in the Scripture when it says these things? Literally, the latter portion of this verse reads, "The Spirit, 
that is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, yearns jealously over us, the indwelling Spirit would guard Christians from committing sin. So it, it, it is both. It is that the Spirit is all about us, jealous for us, and that his, his commitment in us, his dwelling place in us, won't let us produce what the world produces. So I think it's both. Okay. But you know, that's totally understandable because, you know, if we're choosing, you know, something over God because it's something we want or we desire, and instead of realizing how much more we get by choosing God, you know, what He wants. Well, I, I think when we when we expand what James, what we know and we get by the Spirit to understand it in connection with what James has shown us, we, we sit here today and we're not confused. We're not uncertain that of God's heart for us. We're not confused about the price he paid. We're not confused about how over... Uh, overwhelming the love of God is that we can't even, we can't quite comprehend it. We're not confused by that. We're also not confused that absent the Spirit of God working in us, the flesh is going to rule. James was dealing with it in a way because he was watching. Again, I, I, I can't even imagine what James was witnessing in those early days of the church because it didn't take long. I mean, it was quick. When those who even were believers started returning back under the Jewish law, they went right back and, they, and that which Jesus was teaching and preaching, they, they even for James, watching for somebody to say, yes, you're supposed to believe in Jesus, and yes, you're supposed to be baptized, and yes, put your faith in, by, in, what, in his blood, but you also need to be circumcised. What's the basis of that? I hear the truth, but I still want you to believe it my way. I still want you to hear it, do it, my way. So James was dealing with some very, some very profound things that were happening very specifically in that early church. But the same things are still happening today. We're still experiencing the same division, the same brokenness, the same hurt, the same hurt feelings that James was dealing with in this very first century uh, after the crucifixion. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.